Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the program, the best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, the next best way is to make a donation either through the Acast app or at our Patreon, which is just patreon forward slash recyclables.com. Until next time, thank you. Start this one up again. Right, welcome to part three of The Cost of Convenience. I'm one of your hosts, Patrick Thomas Perkins. And I'm Rochelle Cody. Uh, what did we cover in our previous parts, Patrick? In, in our first part, we covered the history of kind of shopping in stores in America. Mm-hmm. And in section two, we covered specifically the history of convenience stores uh, relating to 7-Eleven and kind of set the stage for where our main story is going to happen in the 1960s. Uh, but this part, I kind of am calling uh, the history of plaid pantry. Okay. Right? And I want to, I want to again clarify from the top. Uh, this is not meant to be a hit piece. I actually think a lot of the history is important. And I worked in Plaid Pantry for a couple of years. Uh, and then because of a boycott that I led, got really interested in what led to these, right? And so even though this next section and the section after it are about plaid specifically, this isn't about plaid specifically. Things like This is a case study. Yes, thank you. Because things like this are going on all across the country. Plaid is just unique in that Portland is a very unique spot as far as these conditions. This is your John Krakauer Missoula, the one he wrote about college campus rape and used my college campus for. Oh, sure. Yes, yes. Basically, it's that. It's like you find a place where you can get a full case study about something. And because you've lived in this area and I've also worked in that uh, business, you kind of have, it's like your way to look. Yeah. And because this one guy has a story that goes along kind of from start to end of his life, it highlights a lot of these things, not just as a case study, but as a uh, example of a thing you and I were talking about off mic, which is a lot of history uh, kind of power and authority disseminates and it, and it gets broken down amongst multiple people. But in this one instance, one guy is in charge the whole time. There's no corporate takeover the way 7-Eleven might change. So that he's truly the face of Plaid Pantry. Yeah, for, for several years. I'm ready. Right. I'm going to look. What's his name so I can look him up and see his face? Oh, his name is really freaking hard to spell. Give me a second. Well, I found his John. It looks like it should be Placenta or Panini or Panchata. Panchata. That's a hard one to say, and I'm not trying to be insulting to that language. It's just there's a lot going on that I'm not capable of at this moment. Now, my friend Walter at the Italian Food Carts on Foster is an Italian-born individual, and he told me you can pronounce it Pancinetti. Pancinetti. I'm going to call him John for most of this. Can we call him Papa John? Papa John, sure. 1913! <laughs> Sorry. 1913, maybe 1911, 1911, 1913, uh, John Pancinetti's father, Carlos Pancinetti, arrived to Ellis Island from Italy. Uh, For those of you not familiar, I highly recommend Robert Evans' Behind the Bastard about the early Italian fascists to understand what was going on at the time. But to summarize it, Italy was experimenting with a a fa, if you will, a fascism. (laughs) Uh, uh, A variety of different people were trying to kind of take over as what would eventually develop into fascism. And yeah. so you were either pro fa or you were anti the fa, like you were you were you were anti fascism, uh, and and you were fighting against it, or you left. You were just like, you know what? I do not want to be in the middle. Europe has been at war for like a hundred years at this point. This sounds exhausting. Yeah, I'm, I'm done. Out. See you, see you, kids later. And that's that's approximately what it looks like. Carl uh, Carlos does. He arrives in Ellis Island and immediately moves to Portland, Oregon. And uh, gets established as a stonemason. And the reason I want to start with John's father is because he's an immigrant and he is in a labor union, right? Stonemasons are basically, they're not just bricklayers. You also get architects in there to a certain degree mm-hmm. and like all kinds of things. But it's it's a union. So yeah. this man arrives in the country as an immigrant and right away has a labor union to kind of help him set in place. Support him, yeah. Yeah, so he arrives in America in 1913. Uh, By like 1920-ish, he has a home. 
And uh, his first son is born. His first son doesn't really figure into the story. He doesn't matter. But the he myth has, of the firstborn is a lie. Yeah, he has three sons. He names one for God, uh, or one for family, one for God, and one for the government. So his first son is Carlos Pancinetti Jr. Okay, right? is that for government? For for family. For family. Carlos Jr. Okay, right? that makes sense. For for God, John Baptiste Pancinetti. Okay, right? got it. And for government. Franklin Delano Roosevelt Pancinetti. Oh my gosh, I love it! At that point in the early 1930s, John is born in 1933, his brother is born a little bit later, Portland, Oregon is racist AF. Oh yeah. The KKK is first getting started in the uh, the, the kind of foothold here. Uh, for those of you, again, I recommend, uh, actually The Dollop has a great episode about the history of Oregon and the KKK, but mm-hmm. by this point, they're really kind of a, a, a pyramid scheme of white supremacy, right? There, Robert Evans makes a good point on his podcast, Behind the Bastards, that like everybody is really horrifically racist at this point. The KKK is just codifying it and then charging you for membership. <laughs> right? It sounds like a religion. Yeah, it's a little bit. It's I like, mean, it is because of Christian nationalism. But that, that comes later. The KKK is a vital part in Oregon. And so another, and at the time, they're not just racist against black people. They're racist against immigrants, in particular Italians who are considered like basically one step above black air quotes in the racism hierarchy at the time of the white supremacist hierarchy. So there's a strong incentive to be like, I am fucking American with one of your kids. But also they were expecting a daughter. So, so they had, they were so convinced. Do you think it was going to be Eleanor Roosevelt if it was a daughter? Uh, maybe. I don't. That would have been dope. So, so all I do know is they say this and then I read this other source that says that like they were expecting a daughter and then when they had a son, they're like, let's just name him after the president. Mm-hmm. Right. And not even just one of his names, not even two of his names, all three of them. Which is like, I don't, I could not. That would be like, let's see, when my kid was born, that would be like if I had named my son Herbert Walker Bush Perkins. Right. We're going to do a fast forward of Oregon's history real quick. Uh, We're going to kickstart to early 1900s Oregon where this man arrives in. Um, (laughs) So in the 1900s when this guy arrives, Oregon is a very weird place in that um, a lot of Far left-wing people are here. A lot of anarchists, uh, the Wobblies, have a big branch here, right? Because we're the furthest away you can be from the federal government and still be in America, air quotes. And it's still very much the Wild West in Oregon. Like, it's very... A lot of this area is unsettled woodland. And the, the Wobblies thing is they want, like, kind of a union for everybody, right? So we're all in a union. Screw the bosses. We make the choices. Yeah. And so they're, because they're so, so kind of, uh, wide reaching, they're less racist, but that's, that's, that, that's at the time. Yeah. So progressive yeah. for the time, but you and I would be like, yeah. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's, it's a thing, but that is also Oregon in particular is super racist. Yeah. Right. Because it starts off as a white supremacist haven. Yeah, right. it was a whites-only state. Yes, and it was considered the the liberal option. And liberal on the spectrum as the larger world sees it, not as we kind of see it in America. Liberal meaning kind of the left end of staying the same. Yeah, it's it's consumer-based and like financially-based. It's, it, it's basically being a libertarian. Yeah. Liberal and libertarian are very similar if you think about it. Yeah, and libertarianism means something different outside of America than it does here. That, that term got co-opted by people who are further on the right. That's a whole thing. But Here but, it means you live in a fantasy world. That's all I'm going to say. And, and and in other places it means you, you've accepted reality on its own terms. So so it's far left in that sense. Uh, so, the, so there are far left anarchists here and people who are rights activists. But at the same time, there are more liberal voices here that are much more... The idea of a liberal haven at the time is we'll solve racism by just having the one race. If it's only white, then we can't be racist against other people. They're the people but, who won't say they're the white. They're the people that are, I'm not a white supremacist. I just believe in ethno states. Yeah, and the, a big a big indicator of this, besides the KKK eventually coming into power, is that uh, 
a lot of places, a lot of businesses are whites only, but there is no Jim Crow. Instead, it's a personal choice that you're making to only want. You just don't think black people are going to be comfortable here. So it's, Oof. yeah, yeah, it's that kind of thing. It's not, it's, it's not a progressive mindset. It's more of a like, well, we've accepted white supremacy exists. How can we justify it? Oh, it's a personal choice I'm making. It's not, it's not the government. That's not the rules. They can have separate but equal, but we're not going to codify it as that. That's rude, right? That's, <laughs> that's kind of. That's kind of the mindset, and it's not better. I don't want anyone to get the impression that I think this is a better thing. It's just the the reality of, and and so into this, John Pancinetti is born right as a as a young man, and as an Italian, there's a little bit more pressure on you to be performatively white, right? Mm-hmm. So like his dad, even though he's in a union, is going to have to work a little bit harder and going to push his kids harder as well the the model minority myth yeah. is going to or at least the expectations going to be pushed on them as kids yeah. and this, this this definitely puts some pressure on the kids because john who's born in 33 has a job by the time he's 12 or 14 so post-world war ii he has a job at a grocery store and if you'll remember all the way back to episode one grocery stores are much more of this like kind of entrepreneurial business where you have a grocer who provides you with produce, a baker who takes care of the goods, and a uh, maybe a butcher. You're not making tons of money this way. And he gets a job probably as one of those guys that, one of those kids that runs the errands or collects the, because, you know, maybe you can't make it to the store, so you send the kid to go get the list from the old lady who's got a pension mm-hmm. or whatever. I want to I wanna key off the model minority myth and the fact that his dad has labor organization that provides him with jobs. And in fact, his dad built several structures that are still uh, downtown Portland right now. Like, you can go see oh, really? some of his dad's work. Yeah. And... Because he has a union, he he has rights right away, even though he's uh, an immigrant. Also, he's able to buy a house very quickly, yeah. right? So from 1913 to 1933, they own a house. Uh, so John works in stores, goes to uh, high school, and part of that minority myth thing that I want to push is that he, he or, or highlight, is that he works really hard in school. He doesn't necessarily get the best grades, but his dad also pushes each of the kids towards kind of uh, living the American dream. And he pushes John to keep up with the grocery store business, to keep up with business in particular. So he goes to college immediately after high school and is able to pay it off. And that's another thing. So he gets his fa- he benefits from his father having a strong union. Right. He benefits from the fact that uh, at the time that they're coming into the country, a lot of public works programs are available and a lot of careers are available. So his dad is able to settle into a career as a stonemason. Uh, his mom, I believe, worked in a hospital or she may have been a homemaker. The the boys. That's were... code for doing all the unpaid labor necessary in a family. Yeah. Sorry. I, <laughs> I knew that immediately. But yes. No, I just it's funny that like. That was the way we described all of the things. And I mean, making a home is important, but it's so funny that it's not It's it's domestic servitude, but like you get paid in the love of your children. Yeah, that's cool. And (laughs) less abuse from the husband if you do things right. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully. So, in... And, and he's, so he's able to benefit from a stable family life and a strong education system. He goes to Clark school at Lewis and Clark College and he's able to pay it off and he gets to do like a bachelor's in business, right? That was possible in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, that was something you could do. Right. And he's, he's a hard worker because immediately after this, he goes to Safeway. In a very quick amount of time, like less than a decade, he's manager. And this is at a time when like, labor unions had uh, more power. So we talked in the convenience store section, I think it was, about sanitary grocery. Since they were a social place that you went in addition to a business, and it was like an event to go to the supermarket, uh, careers there were stable, right? And getting a job there carried a certain amount of prestige. That's something to everyone. Everyone knows you're you're the best bagger, or you're the best mm-hmm. guy in the butcher shop, or you're the best cashier, or whatever. Right. And you have a strong labor union too. So you're never working too hard in theory. Right. Like you, and you're getting a lot of benefits. You're getting paid overtime, that kind of thing. That's bad for the business in that they're not making as much money. 
but John works hard and makes store manager by the time he's 30 of a Safeway, right? And this is a big deal at that point. Weird fact, too, the Safeway that he worked at, it would have been about three to five blocks from where I live now. It's There's a 7-Eleven and a Goodwill there now. But he is a hard worker, he makes his way to manager, and he starts saving money, and he's very much following that American dream of he starts, you know, working as a as a bag boy or grocer assistant or whatever when he's 14. So by the time he's 30, he's, he's not necessarily the pinnacle of what you can achieve in the grocery industry, you keep going higher, but he started to realize um, that, that he... The impression I got, and this is all from newspaper articles, but the impression I got is that he kind of realizes how far he's going to get within Safeway. Yeah, he's seeing where the glass ceiling is for himself and being like, okay, well, I can probably do the part above it, but I'm going to have to do it by myself. Yeah, we we see that transition in just a second. But the, the thing that I think, there's a funny story that happens before this, which is he gets married sometime over the course of working at Safeway, and he proposes to his wife, and she says, no, not until you have, I'm not going to marry a guy who doesn't have a house. And then within about two years, he has a house and proposes again. So she stuck with him <laughs> yeah. until then? Like, I don't know if they stuck together. It's it, This is in a newspaper mm, article. Because you used to make a big announcement about your wedding and stuff. Yeah. Right? And and it's also, I want to uh, take this to put a pin to describe what Portland is like at the time. Because Portland at the time is not Portland as we know it now. And I know a lot of people's references for Portland are Portlandia or Grimm or like what you see in the news, right? So it's... All of those are true and untrue at the same time. <laughs> There's nothing but Antifa werewolf... Uh, uh, I go through three Antifa checkpoints a day. Yeah. It's really hard. <laughs> it's, 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 it's getting... But, uh, but, but to give people an idea of now, we're kind of a cohesive city. We have a handful of suburbs, right? Like, but overall, there's the Portland general metropolitan area is kind of comprised of a, of a reasonable chunk of real estate that's very cohesive. You can go from east to west, north to south, and be in maybe different neighborhoods, but you're in Portland the whole time, right? Mm -hmm. Portland in the 50s and going into the 60s is not at all like that. It's actually a whole lot more suburbs. All of our little neighborhoods, those are all actually like little towns. Oh, yeah. Right? And uh, unincorporated neighborhoods that all follow their own kind of rules. Like Lentz, this area that we colloquially refer to as Felony Flats was at the time called Errol. It's, it's very much like very similar to how it is now where it's poor. It's a lot of people living on a fixed income. In 1969, you could rent a house like mine. So uh, a place that I share with people, uh, there's like five bedrooms, an attic, a living room, and a kitchen, one and a half baths. You could have rented that for about $100 a month. Working at that weight, you could afford things yeah. in Portland. Yeah, and so he's able to buy a house like that very quickly off of earnings of somebody at Safeway. Right. And another thing that's important is when he gets to manager, I th I've seen it before. He used to work as a janitor at Whole Foods downtown, and I kind of got to see the back half and how it operates. And the deal is when you're a clerk, when you're a, a director or whatever they call of the individual departments, you get a lot more free time. You're not as responsible. You have kind of, quotes less to do and that you just have one thing you need to take care of. But the manager of that store is constantly running around because they've got to make sure this department has what they need. Uh-oh, this department's shorthanded. I guess I have to fill in there. And it's and you're not protected by a union when you're manager either. You're protected mm -hmm. by your contract. And usually you're the one to violate contract because the company's side is so ironclad. Mm -hmm. And so it's very much that thing you're saying of if I'm going to really make it in the company, I'm going to again have to go from the very bottom and work my way to area manager, regional man, whatever their mm -hmm. breakdown is, and then I'm going to have to deal with a whole bunch of prejudices, and I'm not going to keep the profits, and it's not going to be in my name. Well, and who knows how much his dad was pressuring him. Yeah, and that's that's totally a thing, and he's got a new oh, family. Oh, goddamn store. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's a thing, because in 1962, he buys kind of the first, not the first plant pantry, but he buys his own grocery store. Okay. Right? I, he is a hard worker. 
I do. I will. I have a lot of qualms with the man's kind of opinions about things, but he is an incredibly hard worker. He lives next door to his business, so that he's kind of on the clock, twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, right? And it's his grocery store. But he's doing all the work. He's doing all the bagging, all the selling. He's probably got something of a storefront display. Maybe you can bring up the candy or whatever. But he's got most of it, and he and his family are doing it. And he does. He works hard enough. And successfully enough and saves up enough that he can open up a smaller store and he opens up his own convenience store at this time so he's he's doing that right and your your safeway is not even in your town because of the way portland is right there's a lot of there's a lot of open woodland between neighborhoods that right? sounds beautiful yeah it's it's a, a gorgeous place right it's really freaking racist and it's, <laughs> a and it, beautiful racist home and how much money you have depends on how nice of a of a portion of the town you're in and they all have political motivations against each other but being the manager of a safeway is kind of a putting you kind of at the top of the bottom class and kind of the middle of the middle class at this time you're not necessarily you everybody might know who you are in your neighborhood definitely everybody who knows that's john safeway he's gonna make sure we have the stuff right mm-hmm. so when he opens his store he gets a lot of people who are gonna follow him because they know he's a hard worker and he takes pride in what he does and he definitely is gonna get some customers locally that may be used to shop there that are like Ooh. we like what he does And when he opens up the convenience store, he's able to kind of get the first real taste of, 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 of what every capitalist really, really loves and lives for labor theft. Do you, how would you define labor theft? I've been talking a lot. So it took me a long time, like, to understand the term, but I hear more about wage theft because that is what you learn about from your employer in, or like time theft, as in you, lie about how long your lunch or break was or fudge your timesheet. But it sounds like the more I learn about labor theory and what's going on economically, it's so much more employers stealing from their staff and not paying them the full amount of time and not giving them adequate breaks either. I feel like that's honestly a wage theft thing too, to not adequately provide uh, the things that someone needs to do the job effectively and not hurt themselves. Yeah. And in fact, that's the labor theft is kind of the inverse of the time theft. I think, yeah. that, that you're taught by the company. Uh, oh, I, it's kind of like individual recycling versus corporate recycling. Yeah, got it. It's, got it's, it. It's, it's very, no, it's it's <laughs> it very, makes it us making the mistake and doing the bad thing instead of considering what they're doing. I have not read the whole books. You know what I mean? I've read the cliff notes of class theory and labor theory, but labor theft is generally if they don't pay you enough for the work you do. If you generate $100 worth of profit in an hour and they only pay you $8.25 of that profit, right, they're effectively keeping $90 of profit from you, give yeah, or take, right? Yeah, that makes sense. I was I was just thinking about this, like, when it comes to, like, restaurants and stuff. Yeah, it's rest- like, why, if you're not rewarding someone for working during a rush, all you're doing is saying, like, you get paid the same amount regardless, but we'll probably push you beyond what you should be getting paid yeah. for that, like beyond what you're getting paid for that. And so really, really, anytime the company brings up, say, time theft, just think of whatever the opposite of that is. So when they're like, oh, you're lounging around and not doing anything, then it's like, well, are you paying me enough to be doing something right now? Yeah. Every poor person I know has that phrase, minimum wage, minimum effort. Yeah. And a lot of wealthier people don't understand it because they're like, well, I'm giving you money, so just work. And that's where you get that that kind of distinction from. Uh, labor theft in terms of what I would say convenience stores provide is that they can hide it a little bit because if you own multiple stores, if one store is a little bit busier and one store is a little bit slower, then in theory, you're reshuffling the money so you can pay people to still be at the slow store, even though it doesn't make as much money. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's a, but that also kind of hides how much is being actually made over the course of stores and whatnot. So I I don't want to get too far deep into the weeds. Let's not get into the weeds yet. But the important thing is that he can, pay somebody it's that thing before where convenience stores are very cost efficient because he figures out i pay somebody to be here for eight hours i don't have to pay them union fees i don't have to pay them overtime there's no such thing as sick pay right 
I just pay that. That's a fixed cost in labor. Everything I make after that is profit. So if I mark up the items, even say, instead of 12% like they did back in uh, the 1800s, right, or the 1900s, if I mark them up to 16%, then for the cost of it being a little bit more conveniently located, mm-hmm. right, then you get to keep all of that. That's That convenience is kind of a myth. The thing I, I don't think we talk enough about is what you mentioned, which is it also steals from the consumer a little bit. Because to me, if I'm giving you money for something, like if I go into your store and I give your clerk money for a product that I'm going to leave with, my assumption is part of the money I gave you is going to be enough for that clerk to live off of. Yeah. And if you're not giving that clerk enough to live off of, but you're taking the money as though you are, that means you're taking from the clerk and you're taking from me. Right. And I know that's kind of a leftist, like... Yeah, that's that's some people's levels of empathy don't extend that far. That's so, for sure. But to me, I think if you can see the employee as being stolen from, you need to recognize the consumer is being stolen from. Well, and I mean, this goes back to when we were talking about jobs versus careers and how people talk about like fast food work as being uh, low skill and it's like a high school job, da 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 da, and it's like it's still a job that needs to get done. And what about what is low skill about working at two? 2 a.m. on a Friday night when everyone's coming home drunk from the bar and decided to go through the drive-thru and you have an insane rush and one of your machines break down and all of that kind of shit. Like, yeah. Calling anything unskilled labor is just fucking insulting. And a lot of that myth really begins to take hold in American life in the 50s and 60s. A, because the boomers. There's just more, there's more people to do fewer careers so to speak and jobs become more available but it's also because the more time of day we take up right like the more functional the more we need people to do things to make the day continue to go i.e people in restaurants gas station attendants store clerks Mm -hmm. but this myth of unskilled labor starts in that this is a starter job that people will get this will be your first job because it's not very hard there's not a lot of pressure so the important thing is he has a, John Pancinetti has a grocery store and he has a convenience store. And in the early 60s, in 1963, he goes to a convention all about convenience store. A convenience store, store convention. convention. <laughs> yep. And he sees how 7-Eleven is working. Namely, that they're doing this incredibly innovative thing that we did not talk about because I wanted to talk about here, which is they're staying open. Right. I know I know that doesn't sound It doesn't sound baffling right now. So what you need to know is most businesses are closed between five and nine PM. They're shutting down. So you can't go into a grocery store after five o'clock or seven o'clock. It's closed. There's there's no access to these things. So if somebody wants milk, if somebody wants beer, if somebody wants cigarettes, normally they would have to wait until the next morning. But these corner stores are staying open more, these convenience stores. So if you're open when the other guy isn't, you get the money that the other guy was going to get. Yep. Right? He goes to this convention and he sees 7-Eleven is is revolutionizing the game by being open from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. So he comes to Portland and he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take that idea one step further. I'm going to go from 6 a.m. to 12 p.m. And he makes... Buckets of money. Yeah, he just fucking cleans house, I bet. Yeah, and and it, he, he buys a number of chains. And here's the other thing you have to be aware of. In the 50s, the KKK has started to lose power. They've started to be replaced by more what we would consider, in the modern sense, liberal, more left-ish people. But really, they're less, they're less conservative racist and more progressive entrepreneurs. Like types that are coming in and figuring out ways they don't to make care money. Who's, yeah, they, they care about making money, not necessarily the color of the person giving them the money. Also, in a very real way, racism, it's, it's not becoming necessarily passe, but it's becoming extremely obvious that certain people are going to be openly racist and certain people are going to be privately racist. And after being so openly racist... Right. Oregon's trying to get like the KKK taste out of our mouth. And to do it, we lean hard into environmentalism. So that's when you start seeing the bans on DDT. That's when you start seeing uh, endangered species acts. And 
right after all of these stores open, right after he starts opening all of his businesses. Because uh, what he does is he takes a loan out on his old, two older stores, or he sells them or whatever, and he buys a few more, like maybe eight, and then from there it kind of explodes. Like, he, it just kind of grows exponentially. I say explodes, but that means he goes from like eight to 20 to 30. That's but insane. Yeah, it's That's still... That's super quick. What it is is that... A, he's able to make money because there aren't competitors. There are very few of these other shops. These other shops are also probably reading between the lines a little bit racist, right? And as the KKK is leaving and we're becoming more liberal again, and we're we're kind of trying to put this forward face of we're 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 the, a state of progress, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those people, the the more adamant kkk people are leaving so he can buy up these shops that are kind of closing down as those people are losing money and losing oh, because business to backtrack these are the places that actively did not want to serve yeah. black clientele and now they're realizing they can't do that in the way that they want to yeah and so it's still racist but it's that thing of like we're going to be racist behind closed doors because open racism is just it's it's a it's causing riots Right, like in the sixties, yeah. there's riots all over the place. We don't want that in Portland, right? Like we're too nice for that, or whatever. <laughs> Vanport cough, Vanport. But <laughs> the 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 other part of it is that more money is also being made here again because once the shipping, once the ship manufacturing industry of World War II dies down, we go back into logging and a few other things and the shape of our economy changes and the shape of our politics changes a little bit. And so as a result of all of that change, it's the, the social attitudes are changing and more people are showing up here because the, the city experience is not necessarily a population boom, but our reputation as a city becomes more of a thing. Mm-hmm. And we're buying up... The, the other reason he, he's able to open up these plaid pantries, and they're called plaid pantries because the first store he opened had like a plaid layout on the outside, and people were like, oh, that's John's plaid pantry. And mm. it just stuck. It's one of those cutesy names. And mind you, right now there is no plaid in any of the signage. Yeah. And when I moved here, I was like, the fuck is this shit? You have a place called plaid pantry, and there is no plaid to be seen. And it's just on the the shirt of the cashiers, <laughs> but it's not good enough. Yeah, it's not. So he, I derailed myself. <laughs> so he, and so as he sets up these plans and these, it adds to that notion that the city is becoming more uniform. Right, and it's going from being a bunch of little townships that each has kind of their own political motivations and budgets, right, to a more homogenous city with suburbs and a rural area and that kind of thing. And as these plaids pop up, they kind of sell that identity. They kind of become intertwined with that, right? So it, even though they they are. Um, was there a point where it was like a big deal that a plaid was built or yeah. like made in your neighborhood? Yeah, because it meant you, you A, you knew consistently what you would be able to get at the plaid, and B, you knew like, oh, you knew it was going to be a nice, clean place, right? And that's that's a big thing. There's a number of articles that talk about the fact that you could call up John Pancinetti and be like, the parking lot at the 72nd and Holgate Plaid has way too much trash. And he'd be like, all right, cool, I'll get somebody on it. And he would call up the clerk and they would go get it. Oh, my God. And so he makes boatloads of money over this time period because he's open when his competitors aren't open, right? He's also able to mark up prices for your convenience. It's convenient to you that we're open at 11, so we're going to charge you for a little bit more. Like, it'll be... 20% 20% markup instead of the 12% Wouldn't markup. it be funny if there were, like, happy hours at convenience stores? There there were on and off. Different people made attempts like that or made it so that... And, like, individual stores had that more of a thing. And it's... it's During this period, you have, like, weird little stuff that people will do. They're like, trying. But, yeah. yeah. And in 1969, Oregon, as a result of our effort to kind of be more environmentally friendly... The other thing, the other reason Oregon got into environmentalism, uh, interstate highways... We become a vacation destination. People are like, we want to see your fucking woods and your forest and your mountains. And so our national parks are a place. And so people start coming to Oregon. And that's that's why Platt is also kind of interwoven into the Portland identity. Because a number of them are located at easy-to-access points city-wise. Like it's maybe mm-hmm. off a freeway ramp mm-hmm. or whatever. 
Okay, so in 1969, it's not the first, but it's one of the more sweeping. Oregon initiates the bottle return bill. Yeah. And John Pancinetti is a very kind of weird conservative. Environmentalism was a conservative issue at the time because you wanted to take care of the country. You wanted it to, you wanted us to have the best national parks. Right. And you also thought that it was a waste that the government was doing it when it was private people's responsibilities to pick up after themselves. Right. So you're you're fine with government initiatives to like clean and regulations and rules about what trash can do. But you 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 also think it's my responsibility to clean up after myself. And if I have more money, uh, there's this strain of conservatism that that kind of died off. Uh, where people are like, the more money I have, the more responsible I am for my community because I, my net worth is tied from the community, right? And Pancinetti very much has that opinion. So he comes up with this idea that he will simplify the bottle return problem because it's actually kind of a nightmare, right? Because I would have had to... You'd have to, to return it specifically to the place that you got it. Yeah. And so that means I have to go to the... Uh, sparkling water plant and then I have to go to the cola plant and then I have to go to the yerba mate plant and then I have to assume I bring enough that they'll actually pay me for it which means I have to take time out of my day to do it and it's just way easier to throw it on the ground right right and we also don't have a concept of earth as a resource that we can go through like we're starting to get it in the 50s but at the time there's still a lot of places that are kind of uninhabited, unexplored, virgin territory. To white people. Yeah. And Oregon is very much kind of a wild west. I've said it before, but 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 we're we're fresh. The federal government is all the way on the East Coast. You have to go over the Rockies, the Great Plains, and the Mississippi River and the Appalachian Mountains before you get there. Right? Yeah, like, and this was before Twitter, okay? Yeah. And at the same time though, it's weird because it's a whole fiscal series of opportunities. You can be the first businesses to break the rules and set up how they're 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 established, right? Yeah, right. So there there's a weird left wing, right wing merging. It's like a power vacuum kind of thing, yeah. right? Yeah, and that that liberal conservative mindset is very intertwined at this time, right? But the most important thing is you have this bottle bill. It's very difficult to implement, but it's very sweeping, right? And what it is, is bottles will cost more, but you can return them and get the deposit back, right? That the bottles had a return and people were very against it because they're like, I don't want to do all that work. And Pancinetti is like, I tell you what, I'm selling you the bottles. You bring the bottles to me. And I will give you some of the deposit. Not all of it. Not all of it. So if it's one penny, if I remember right, for one bottle in deposit, every two cans you bring him, he'll give you a penny. So 50% profit. Yeah. And no place else is doing this. No place else is on board with this. And he's thinking, he's thinking I will generate a little bit of money. I'll show businesses that it's possible to do this. But when he does this in... Uh, do, 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 April of 1970, right? It becomes a huge deal. He, and he starts just raking it in. He gives out thousands of dollars, right? In 1960s money. So he gives away almost a million dollars, if my math in, in the, the, the changing of the money is correct, right? But he gets so many cans returned to this one location, the National Guard is called out to take away something like two or three million cans, mm. right? And it starts off as this little promotion. But here's the thing. The, the company tells you all that. But this other thing he did to get people to do it was he would put gift certificates in bottles and cans he advertised that there's gift certificates in bottles and cans on the side of the freeway. And if you find it, you can bring it in, right? Which to oh me... Oh my gosh, it's like an Easter egg hunt. Yeah, yeah. And apparently nobody ever turned in the grand prize one. So somewhere out there, there is a, a bottle or can, probably a bottle, that has a piece of paper that says it's worth $100 in plaid pantry merchandise that's from just somewhere out in the Oregon wilderness. Oh, that's but, wild. And this, here's the thing though, this fucking makes the man a celebrity it increases sales right and it it may it, i i cannot stress how much this blows up 
Because he goes from being like kind of a local business owner, something of a like everybody knows what plaid is in Portland to everybody in the state of Oregon knows who John Pancinetti is to a certain degree, or at the very least knows Plaid Pantry figured out how to implement the bottle bill. Right. He goes, he gets, so in April, he implements this. In May, he's like in the newspaper every couple of weeks as like, at least once a week as like, this is going big. Um, in night, in June, he gets an award from Lewis and Clark College for like businessman of the year honored. Mm -hmm. Well, and that probably looked good for them to be like, you know, he went here. Yeah. 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 And then in September of 1970, he's named citizen of the year. And for the rest of his life, this will be his big claim to fame. He will tour the nation explaining, if you bring me the bottles and you pay them half of what it's worth, I'll keep that money when I return it. Right? And it's this insane thing where it makes him a ton of money. It makes him a celebrity. And it means that he pushes for the bottle bill. And it's that conservative, that weird environmental conservative strain of, I make the money. I'm responsible for doing this. The government shouldn't be, the government made the right call by coming up with the deposit, but they shouldn't be implementing it or enforcing it. I should be profiting off of it. Yeah. Right. And he, he is like, I'm, I'm not kidding about the fact that he goes around the country. Like he goes to speak to DC. After this, the bottle bill gets the, you know how it's like kind of all across the nation now? It's because he goes and speaks on it. And it's like, we figured it out because three other states had it in place and were considering abandoning it because they, they weren't able to implement it. made it stick. Yeah. And he's like, no, just have, make it part of the business. Right. Yeah. Make it a part of the business. Like, um, in Montana, we don't have, a deposit like there's no money you can make from them so what you can do is you can just keep all of your stuff and then bring it to a recycling center and they'll do it by weight so i would crush my cans when i first moved out to portland not realizing that the, the, that main and i mean i don't tend to bring them in i usually just leave them by the recycling for folks to pick up who do pick them up i felt so bad after crushing all those cans and really like shit that's like a dollar for someone yeah, and the, the deposit also, uh, to backtrack a little bit, comes from that similar conservative environmentalist mindset where they're like, people are too lazy to pick up after themselves. Yeah. But we'll give them an incentive so that people who don't have a job have something to do too. They can help out and make a little money. Ugh. Uh, and that's where it's it's this thing. There's a great book called uh, uh, Poor White Trash or, or The History of White Trash in America, 400 Years of Class. And it's about how... From the very beginning, uh, when, when England colonizes America, their job, their, it's colonized initially with homeless people, essentially from England, who are like brought over here and then told, you know how to hunt, trap, farm, all that shit, even though you've lived on the street for the past 30 years, get to work, right? And it's a very similar mindset that you see all the way in 1969 in Portland, Oregon, where people are like, hey, you do the work for me, right? Like, like poor people, you need something to do. Here's a way to make money and you'll be cleaning things up for us. Ugh. So in 1970, he is put on a, uh, a special council of TriMet, right? So he goes from being a local celebrity to having political influence. And all throughout this time, his store, his number of, of stores are increasing, right? So he's making after this point, like millions a year. He, he is a literal millionaire by 1971, in part because of this. Like, he was kind of on track to do that. Mm-hmm. But this is that thing that takes him... This is why Portland is such a unique story, and why Platt is such a unique story, and a, such a very interesting case study of convenience stores. Because there is this guy who's... He grew up very strongly Catholic, right? So he has a sense of community and obligation there. He grows up as an immigrant who's taught, like, you've got to work hard. you got to be a model. you as hard as you can. Yeah. And then he's a businessman who starts his own business and sees himself transform local politics and action and, and gain nationwide celebrity. I mean, he's not, he's not like a household name, you know what I mean, in New York, but they're going to be like, oh, that guy who, who solved the bottle return process, right? Yeah. Uh, so from after 1971, he's involved on and off with politics. Like he's put on the Chamber of Commerce when he's a little bit uh, in later in the 70s and 80s. And uh, uh, 1974, he, he runs for office. Oregon has always been Democrat for like 20 years or so. And in 74, when he's running, Nixon has just been impeached. So running as a Republican is, is kind of toxic. 
right? Unless you're in a Republican state. So there's a lot of places where Republicans don't even run because it's kind of the reverse of what we had with Trump, where like there's this huge problem. So a lot of people are bolstered and instead they're like, I'm going to ride Trump's coattails. When Nixon gets impeached, people are like, I'm going to back off from being with the Republicans. And he hears nobody's running. So Pancinetti goes and runs for office as the uh, on, on county council. Portland doesn't have the power that the Multnomah County has mm. at the time. Now it's a little bit reversed. You want to be on the council for the city council for Portland because you're going to have influence on how the county is going to act, right? Uh, he doesn't get the office. He does some good things in that time. He tries to fight inflation. Like he's very outspoken against it. And he's very outspoken about the high unemployment rate in Portland, which I'll, I'll explain that in just a sec, like how that comes about. And uh, by the end of the 70s, he's done a lot of very interesting things besides just the bottle return. He's opened up, he's worked with the Grey Panthers, which are kind of two elderly people, what the Black Panthers were to uh, black activism. They were people who kind of stood up for elderly people's rights. And uh, they acknowledged that like older people aren't able to shop the same hours. They, they sleep differently sometimes mm -hmm. as your body ages, your sleep needs and your physical. So he opens up this co-op for elderly people in downtown Portland, right? In the early 80s, he helps the jazz festival, the Mount Hood Jazz Festival get started and like helps helps get cable network started in Portland. And he's on, uh, after the city, after the TriMet Council, after the failed run for city council, he's put onto the City of Commerce Council. He's given kind of these honorary positions because what happens is when you make a lot of money and you reinvest it in the community, people kind of will give you a certain political authority. It seems like almost more of a soft power thing, but no, and that's not what I mean. It's it's more of an unofficial power because it's like it's not it's not on the books yeah. as a law that you like you're writing a law. It's you supporting causes that you either give them the idea that you want them to run with, or you agree with the idea they're running with already. Yeah, but mm -hmm. he tries to, for the most part, be a force for good, right? And so, and I mean, some of that could be counteracting some things that he's doing on his, uh, to make money. Yeah, like it, most folks, yes, there is a drive to benefit the community, but there is also points where it's a way to redirect press about what you're doing, and then redirect from things that might be a problem that and, people are pointing out. And that occurs quite a bit, right? Yeah. Uh, throughout this whole story. Like, uh, I'm almost done with this section, and then we'll get to what I call the people's history, right? But the the I want to tell you a funny story from this section. Plaid has a mixed reputation in Portland throughout all of this. When it starts off, it's sort of like that, oh, it's Plaid, it's, it's around it's the new, corner. It's cool. Yeah. As the 70s get into the 80s, right, Portland loses a lot of jobs. It loses, it loses a lot of careers and gains a lot of jobs, right? So it stops being union manufacturing and production and lumber yards and starts being sales clerks, starts being uh, restauranteurs, starts being strip clubs, start being a thing, right? Independent businesses that manufacture artisanal bullshit starts becoming a thing. Right. And as that does, as, as careers give way to jobs, crime increases because people have to make the money they need some way and not, there's not always enough jobs to meet the needs either. And there's also not a lot of jobs that like pay, can, uh, pay enough or, and can accommodate a lot of people's life situations. It's, it's weird because as the seventies give into the eighties, plaid also becomes more associated with the lower class. It also, you get a seedier element gathering there because drug sales also spike in Oregon at that time. And in fact, I remember growing up, there would be a lot of stories about Portland's like transient kid population because homeless kids would gather here because it was kind of easy to get jobs and the punk scene was super strong here, right? And the underground kind of train hopping scene. Uh, but all that is to say, there's this great story of a, a, uh, Actually, we'll end this section on the story after okay. I get to my, my, my thesis, which is he's very much a celebrity. John Pensionetti is by, by 86 or so a Portland staple. He's a local celebrity though, and his opinion is respected. Uh, but at the same time, um, people are looking down on the stores. So they're respecting the millionaire who is making millions of dollars off of people who are kind of giving him a certain amount of free labor, which we'll discuss in the next section, mm -hmm. but also off of the inflation. But he is 
starting the jazz festival. He's invented the can process. So he's got this weird celebrity stature, right? To the point where my favorite story, like 84, 85, so I'm maybe a baby at this point. This guy uh, is hold, holds on Belmont 39th, holds the plaid pantry there hostage, holds the parking lot hostage with a shotgun from his balcony. Oof. Because the parking lots at this time have a lot of drug traffic, have a lot of kids gathering, have a... This is when that weird culture starts, that, that tropes, that thing that's a tropes in movies for us is a real thing then, where kids are gathering to spend for money for the arcade or to figure out how to steal the nudie mags, right? Mm-hmm. And so this guy holds a parking lot hostage and is like, I just want quiet. People are bumping their music, all that stuff, right? Like before you can bump your music, you're bumping your crib's clear water or whatever, right? And he's holding it hostage. And John Pancinetti shows up and is like, hey, hey, you can hold my parking lot hostage. But can people still come in and out of my store and do business if they're quiet? Like, will you still let my clerk sell things? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, as long as... As long as the parking lot is clear and quiet, that's fine. I won't shoot anybody with my shotgun that I'm waving out of the balcony. Good lord, and we talk about Karens. And he gets away with it. Like, he he gets some amount of trouble, but the dude gets away with it. But it's my favorite part because this guy experienced it firsthand. Like, he writes, he's one of the editors at the Oregonian, and he writes, does this write-up of the encounter. And he's like, it was surreal because I'm with my son. And we go into the storm. We're like, what are all the cops here? Is it safe to go in? And the cops are like, yeah, it's just some dude holding the parking lot hostage. But you're fine in the store. The the business manager talked him out of shooting people who weren't spending money. Like, it's... Oh, and that's, that's who this guy is to the community. He is the store owner, but he's also kind of a celebrity. So when he comes in, he's willing... He's got a reputation for being willing to deal with these problems. And so that's, that's, that's the history of Plaid Pantry. We're going to come back and explore... The Howard Zinn version, if you will, the people's history of Plaid Pantry. So Patrick wanted me to let you folks know that uh, I sell artwork, and I do. I predominantly do poor painting, which is the most uh, elegant way of saying I have ruined uh, my chances of getting my deposit back at my apartment. If you folks are interested in looking at the visual art that I have created, um, you can go to at whore for poor on Instagram, so W-H-O-R-E-F-O-R-P-O-U-R. Yeah, I spelled that right. Uh, And you can see my artwork. At this time, I'm not really interested in doing commission, but if there's a piece that's listed for sale, just send me a direct message, and we'll see what we can do about getting that in your hands. This is the credit portion of the Cost of Convenience podcast. Unless otherwise specified, all information was obtained through the Oregonian's historical archive or by personal experience. We were recorded by Rochelle Cody. We were edited by Patrick Thomas Perkins, who also supervised and researched. After I edited it, I realized the first one is to my son. Thank you very much. May show may. Dustin A. Thank Ashel. I have a lot of personal friends I should thank, but in Tony Allison, Chelsea, and I'd like to thank the comedy. Thank you, Dirty Angel, as well, in particular, Courtney and Tyrone Call. Venmo at Patrick Thomas, Cash App, or Pay Word. Once again, thank you. Thank you for picking up recyclables today. Donations to the ACAST streaming service are, of course, always welcomed, but the best way to support the show is by going to patreon.com forward slash recyclables and becoming a patron today. If you can't do that, another great way is by liking, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you use. All right, thanks.